This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along to some broader industry thought leadership as we explore various market dynamics and uh, various business dynamics that are shaping the oil and gas world and the broader energy industry. As we dig into today's conversation, which we're going to see today is a major intersection of business and IT, which we'll dig into here in a little bit. Uh, I want to make sure you're getting all the opportune content that you desire, both uh, future content as well as anything you may have missed uh, amongst our uh, previous thought leadership conversations. So to make sure you're getting all that content, head to our website, opportune.com, again, opportune.com, as well as subscribe to E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations plus notifications when we drop new ones. So on today's podcast, we're going to be giving you, our audience, the tools to better understand how to best acquire and integrate successful downstream assets for energy companies, and more specifically, why a business and IT alignment is one of the key strategies to fully realize a new acquisition. For a little, I guess, timely context, the current trend of refinery acquisitions is a tumultuous one as downstream assets, especially refineries, are trading hands often. Uh, There's a lot of market motivators uh, that are pushing this along, which we'll get into here in a little bit. But as refineries trade hands from, you know, for example, integrated oil giants to more independent refiners, so do the goals of these refineries change as refineries embrace new workflows to produce sustainable fuels or they want to expand their footprint uh, in the link of a supply chain for refined or crude products, for example. So we're going to dig deep into the trends that are motivating some of these acquisitions and integrations in today's energy industry. But then more importantly, we're going to give you those specific tips and tricks on how to make the most of these acquisitions and integrations across all of your departments and how to maximize this influx of data, of resources, and of production capacity. So today, we're joined by three thought leaders in the space. Let's go ahead and go down the list one by one. First up, we're rejoined by Mr. Kent Landrum, Managing Director at Opportune. Kent, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Great to be on again, Daniel. Yeah, always a pleasure getting to chat, Kent. I appreciate your insights and... uh, Now that we have some rapport, you know, we can have a little fun. So thanks again for joining. Steve Roberts, he's our next guest here. He's a director at Opportune. Steve, welcome. How are you? Great. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Also a pleasure getting to uh, source your perspective on the topic today. And then our third party guest coming to us from Blue Box is Chief Executive Officer Richard Lowe. Blue Box Consolidated is a global brand activation platform that utilizes AI and IoT to improve digital out-of-home advertising as well as customer accessibility. And as we'll explain here in a second, Richard also has several years of IT executive experience in the broader energy industry and in downstream asset transitions. Uh, Mr. Richard, great to have you on. How are you? Good to meet you, Daniel. Hi, Kent. Hey, how are you? How are you doing, Steve? Good to see you again, Richard. Well, that concludes the introductions. Thank you again to the three of you. I appreciate it. Uh, And um, again, I'm looking forward to sourcing your varied perspectives on this. Uh, To just dig in a little deeper into your backgrounds before we get into the core topic, I want to, I guess, frame 
your experience in the context of the discussion, how this gives you some unique insights and what we're going to be breaking down. So for some context for our audience, our Opportune friends on the line have worked on various downstream transitions. Uh, Opportune as a whole has worked on nine of these downstream transitions over the course of 10 years. And Richard, though he joins us as an, uh, an IT executive in an AI-enabled advertising platform today, does bring experience as an IT professional for, like I said, downstream asset transitions for companies like Premcore, PetroPlus, PBF Energy, and Motiva. So what I want to start with is for the three of you, and you know, feel free to go in any order here, but uh, in working in these asset transitions, what have you learned over the years about where energy companies most often fail to maximize their new assets as they're integrated and as they're acquired and you know pull from some of your specific work and examples i think i think one of the thing one of the keys with any of these transactions is to understand the purpose and the value that the that the buyer is looking for and actually understand why the seller is divesting um, I think once you understand that, be it IT, HR, whichever function it is, then you can best work with the function, work with the overall enterprise to make the deal go through successfully and therefore to recognize that value. If you don't understand the deal contract or why it is you're doing the deal, uh, it's, it's hit or miss. You're just you're not all in the boat. You're not all rowing in the same direction. So from an IT perspective, we need to understand what the business is trying to get out of it so that we can actually help the business get there. Um, but if you don't, if you all don't understand the vision, it's not going to happen. I would say that, you know, I've had the good fortune of being involved in six refinery acquisition projects. Um, I've always been on the buy side, but across those projects, it's been a variety of roles, whether it's leading the commercial systems portion of it. Uh, being the project manager for the ERP system implementation or program manager over all of the IT applications. Uh, I've, that's given me the chance to see this process really end to end, except for, I'd say, the IT infrastructure area. The thing that you know I consistently see as a big challenge is the scope and complexity are sort of the biggest hallmarks of these types of projects. There's so many systems involved in the transition that it takes a lot of work to make sure that you take care of the, the networks, the servers, PCs, laptops, tablets, phones, it goes on and on. And then on top of that, you'll have three, four, even 500 applications that the business uses to operate the facility, the refinery itself, or certain back office corporate functions like HR and, and finance that, that Richard alluded to. And so that creates a lot of challenges. And to touch on something that Richard brought up, IT can't do that on its own. And there's going to have to be a lot of calls in terms of the focus areas, which areas we need a pragmatic solution quickly for speed to value and where we decide we're going to avoid gold, gold plating and really get down to what the business absolutely has to have at the time of change and control, what can wait potentially to when a transition services agreement is over, that sort of thing. And that means that there's got to be good alignment on priorities between IT and the business. And to, to take up from that, Kent, um, I think the key there, one of the things, keys that Kent just mentioned was understanding what is required for day one versus what is not required for day one, but what is required for first year end close, first quarter close, first month end close. Those understanding those and building your project plan accordingly is absolutely critical because if you don't understand that, you're just trying to do, as Kent said, a ton of complexity in a short amount of time. Perfect. Thank you for that context, y'all. Um, let's get more specific then. 
in general, uh, what would you say sets downstream or refinery acquisition or a divestiture projects apart from other enterprise projects, but more specifically from an IT perspective, which is uh, really the link we're wanting to make with today's conversation, right? So what are those key differences? Are there any unique challenges or opportunities that come from uh, this specific kind of acquisition or divestiture project and why? Yeah, I think one thing that really stands out to me about these types of projects is the urgency and the pace of the projects, especially when you're working to that changing control date, because that deadline's not going to move. It's, it's not like many other IT projects where you can stop and take a decision that we're going to take some scope out or we're going to push the deadline out. In this case, that's when the business is going to change hands and you have to be ready for it. Sometimes you've got more cushion on the back end because of a transition services agreement. So there's certain things that you have to cut over by that day one date and others that can't. But I think what this does too, and makes these projects a lot of fun for me, is it focuses everybody on those pragmatic solutions. You zero in on what's really important and avoid some of the other sort of sidebars and side projects and things that can cause scope creep and stuff like that on other IT projects. Yeah. And I think to build on that there, you know, it seems rather obvious, but you have the combination of a, a really complex IT and business integration project with an asset that is a continuous operation the entire time that can't stop. There's, uh, you know, there's process units running, there are people coming and going, there's maintenance ongoing, all of those things keep going while this whole thing changes hands. So it's, it's really a, you know, a, a very large complex IT project with a large and complex business process integration project with a physical asset changing hands all at the same time. And so I, I think that's where it adds the complexity and, and I know I'll echo what Kent said, the, the really the, uh, you know, the excitement of a project like this. But let's not forget, Steve, there's also a tremendous amount of change management with all of those working parts. If you do not communicate and listen empathetically to your user community and actually take them into account, you can have a, a rough road at the very end throughout, but then at the very end also, because if the users, if the individuals who are using the systems and the processes are not ready for them or do not understand the reasoning or don't feel like they've been part of the solution, and I'm not saying that they necessarily have a choice, but getting them on board early and keeping them on board will ensure success at the back end. Some of the current contexts motivating asset transitions, I want to get more specific there as well. What would you say are some of the the market forces, maybe the geopolitical forces or just otherwise that are having downstream assets trade hands either more frequently or just in ways that are impactful enough to shape the market, right? And to what effect? How is this changing maybe some of the production capabilities of refineries, integrated oil companies, other players in the industry? Give us your assessment there. Sure. I think for a long time, the integrated oil companies have been in an asset divestiture program, trying to get out from under some of these assets that wouldn't necessarily support their cost structure and wouldn't necessarily run at their scale or weren't integrated with a petrochemical complex on the backside where they can get more value out of it. So they were trying to trim their portfolio and get it down to the assets that really aligned strategically. And over time, now we've seen the added impetus on top of energy transition. That So some of these assets, too, will change hands because the, the business focus of a, a company, say, that is pushing faster down an energy transition path, someone like a Total Energies, someone like that is, is going to be making these kinds of moves as well. 
And then in terms of which assets change hands, a lot of it has had to do with where new refining capacity is coming online and where demand patterns are changing. So if you look at Europe, for example, or you look at the U.S., many of these refineries are much older. Uh, they're not as large. And there's a number of great, big, new, efficient and high complexity refineries coming online in the, these several years here in particular in Asia. And that's also where the demand growth has been. So all of those factors are contributing to these assets changing hands. And then who are they going to? Historically, the refineries in the U.S. and Western Europe that were sold were going to independent refiners. To a limited extent, they were also being, as demand came down, being converted into import or export terminals, either to export crude like out of the U.S. or to import products into Europe because of the change in the demand flows. But increasingly, we're also seeing them change hands to new green energy or renewable fuel startups that want to use these facilities to produce renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel, things like that. Yeah, I think that last one, Kent, is one that's really interesting to me because you know, you've seen a lot of these refineries that are, you know, I think in the business you would see and look at them from a refining perspective and say, those are kind of small or, or mid-sized refineries, but they've got some more complex capabilities and the ability to uh, convert into something like renewable diesel, where, you know, the current uh, market environments on the West coast of the U S and uh, West coast of Canada, even, you know, really support uh, a high value for those products. And if you've got the capability to get, a, you know, a, a low cost, high value feedstock in and convert it to, you know, what is right now a, a high value product with, um, you know, with plenty of demand for it, uh, given the current market conditions, um, you know, you could take, you know, one of those smaller refineries and, and turn it around and produce uh, something that has a higher valuation than, than what you would traditionally think of just bringing in a, you know, a, a low cost crude and converting it to the normal, you know, gasoline diesel jet business. So uh, with the combined experience of leading multiple transition teams uh, amongst the three of you, let's get some positive perspective as well on what has worked well, right? So uh, what would you say are some of the common characteristics for the transitions that you've seen really succeed? What were those common characteristics that led to or were instrumental in the success of the transition and acquisition and why did those prove to be so critical? Yeah, so for me, there were two kind of common attributes that I would point to of the ones that went smoothly. The first is the IT team being prepared, having a plan together, being prepared, having a playbook essentially to make sure all the players understand what they're gonna be doing when in order to complete the acquisition successfully. And it, First of all, it's a great way to get the members of the IT team all on the same page in terms of how the transition project is going to be approached from an infrastructure and from an application perspective, the role that the team members are each going to play in that process, and spell out key assumptions and risks. And then it can be worked. You can take that IT playbook and align it with the rest of the business functions. So sit down with that playbook with your stakeholders in the commercial organization and operations, accounting, HR, on down the line to make sure that everyone knows and that these pieces fit together, that IT is not making an assumption that doesn't line up with HR about how payroll is going to work, for example. And so done right, that playbook will cover all of the infrastructure applications and the approaches that you're going to take for different scenarios. And, and maybe we'll talk about this in a little while, but different deal structures, whether it's a share purchase or an asset purchase too, may change the way you approach that that. Uh, integration and who the seller is and their approach to divesting can also influence it. But having a little bit of a playbook laid out ahead of time will make you able to be more nimble in making changes to that plan once you find out what you're really dealing with. And the other thing 
that I, I find really important is getting IT leadership involved early from the very, very beginning. As soon as you start looking for deals, as soon as you start doing due diligence, it just lets the IT team get a feel for the scale of the project, what's going to need to be in place ahead of time so they can get a head start on it, and what the major differences are between the seller's environment and the buyer's to influence that playbook that I talked about a minute ago. So going from what Kent just said, I would say you cannot get IT in early enough into the whole negotiation process. I like to see IT in as soon as the letter of intent is signed or at least starting to be contemplated. I've seen deals where we got involved before the business even got involved. Uh, and that was very helpful to the business because then when we actually sat down with the business functions, we actually were already ahead of them and understood what the constructs were, what the rails were, the rails of the deal. Um, I think one of the things that Kent may have missed, but I've always tried to go for a win-win um, because realistically, IT never wants to be the... Um, the critical path of a, of a transition, but we in IT always have a long path to get there. So the sooner we get in, the better. Now, the second part of that is going for a win-win because if IT becomes the critical path or the long pole intent or the problem with going live, both sides of the transaction, the seller and the buyer, the IT the IT function is to blame. And so getting everybody in the boat, as Ken said, is not only just on the buy side, but it's also both teams together from a leadership perspective, making sure they're walking hand in hand. Going into every deal and saying, I'm going to win this, this um, playing to, to get each and every uh, deal chit, if you will, that you want, doesn't mean it's going to be successful at the back end because something will have been forgotten. And the only way you both teams being the, the seller and the buyer are going to work together is if they're on the same playbook. Having a, having a program or having a project plan is awesome, but if we can't get everybody on board with it, that, there's going to be some issues. Like taking it down a little more, a little more tactical from, uh, from what Kent and Richard mentioned, you know, my experience is it, it has been that, Lean teams have been the most successful. Um, things can change really quickly in these environments and small multidisciplinary teams that are empowered to make decisions can keep the transition moving forward. Um, where I've, the opposite side of where I've seen that struggle is when there's overweight teams with lots of resources and an organization trying to throw manpower at the problem. I've seen that being less successful, um, you know, lean, multi multidisciplinary, and above all, empowered teams. So you're all arguing here that to some degree, aligning business interests with IT interests as early as possible makes the transition more holistic and then in turn makes it a better use of these newly acquired downstream assets. Can you give us some specific examples for the domino effect there, right? When IT is brought in early and is part of the deal structure early uh, and is um, a focused uh, priority in the acquisition of these new downstream assets, how does that then impact the ability for other departments, other players in this acquisition to make better use of it and to put those resources to work? I guess one example comes to mind at one of my prior companies where um, IT got involved early and understood the 
the systems that the new organization would be functioning on and was better able to coach counsel, work with the finance organization, the controller's organization to make sure that they were ready and help the controller's organization realize, okay, this is the way it was done in the old world. This is what you're going to receive. Now let's do the crosswalk to figure out how you're going to do it in your new world. Old, old world being when the asset was under the seller's regime. This is what you're going to receive. It doesn't necessarily match up with what you're doing today. So how are we going to get you to what you're doing today so you can do your monthly and quarterly filings? Yeah, I think another example of bringing IT in early is in, in a lot of cases, you know, IT uh, hopefully will have a playbook. And that playbook, you know, as Kent mentioned, I believe that can be used to align not only the IT resources, but really align a process and a methodology and a terminology with the business. And, you know, what I found is in a number of the cases, you know, there are pieces of the business that may not have gone through an acquisition before. And so there, there's a, you know, there's a learning on that side as well. So aligning everybody on, hey, hey, here's what the process is going to look like. Here's when we say this, this is what it really means. And this stage is, you know, we're all going to call this stage this. So we're all speaking the same language through the transition. It, it makes that a lot easier because a lot of business people, you know, e you know, either don't have the experience or some maybe, you know, maybe not know what they don't know to speak up and ask questions. Um, so I think I IT getting involved early that can kind of set the tone and lead the way and, uh, you know, and set that, uh, that nomenclature and language that everybody could speak. Steve, that's pretty funny when you should say that, because when you said that, I remembered a super major divesting an asset to one of my prior companies where super major was using these terms and our company were using those terms for different meanings. And we spent quite some time and it was the business. It was a business question. And I, we spent quite some time. And then finally I was sitting in a room with him. I'm like, wait a minute, you're not talking about the same thing here, guys. You're talking this and you're talking this. And they had just never gotten in a room and realized that they were using the same word for different things. Yeah, absolutely. Talking past each other. Now, I'm sure this focus in IT uh, has some specific impacts on ROI and bottom line for a transaction. Uh, could be things like time to value, cost minimization, realizing synergies of a deal. Do any of those ring out to you as IT's biggest contribution to the bottom line for uh, an acquisition? Uh, or are there others that stand out that you think, uh, I don't know, you could summarize as either the biggest and best contribution of focusing IT earlier or uh, maybe just one that you think is particularly um, cogent or really highlights the impact that IT can have on a downstream acquisition? Yeah, I think in terms of these types of opportunities, these projects are a lot of fun from an IT perspective because you don't get a ton of chances in IT to drop dollars to the bottom line. But in making sure that these projects go smoothly, whether you can take a month off of the TSA or six months off of the TSA or take work streams out so that you don't have to pay the seller to provide that IT support service or that back office accounting service to shrink the duration and the scope of those transition services agreements, you can save a lot of money. And I think that's one area where to you know, go back to what Steve and Richard were saying about the playbook and about getting everyone on the same page for each of these different functions is walking through that process and, and figuring out if I can get this system ready for you by this date, controller, can you take over accounts payable for yourself? Great. Now we can write that out of the transition services agreement and save money. So that's one big area where I see IT being able to contribute in these types of projects. 
Um, I think the other one that has come to mind a couple of times through the through the years of doing this is licensing. Uh, many times, licensing for software is a very large proportion of the IT costs, and making sure that you have a good handle on what you're getting versus what you already have, uh, the 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 uh, parameters of the licensing agreement from the seller versus what you have. Sometimes the seller has better licensing. Sometimes the uh, buyer has better licensing. So relicensing sometimes is valuable. Um, and again, as Ken said, looking for ways you can drop to the bottom line because um, IT traditionally doesn't have a lot of opportunity to drop to the bottom line. So what would be some of your strategies then for centering IT early, right? How can IT professionals and an IT organization best position itself and prepare to execute on this type of project with that holistic impact in mind, right? The broader um, assistance of an enterprise digesting an acquisition of this scope at this scale and in a way that, um, you know, proves to be, I guess, um, yeah, useful to its greatest extent, right? Uh, what would be your tips for how they can position themselves and make sure that their contributions are used to this degree? I'm going to try and start this one and then expect Kent and Steve are going to pick it up. Um, in my prior, in, in the 15 years that I was the CIO of oil companies, um, I always maintained a very lean team. Um, M&A by definition is not the norm. So you staff to operate and maintain, and then you leverage trusted third parties who understand your business culture, who can get on board quickly, who have experience in doing this, uh, and have experience doing it with you and your organization. And you bring the third parties in, whether it's one third party organization like Opportune or multiple third party organizations, you bring them in and you partner with them. And... As you do multiple transactions, that partnership becomes deeper and stronger, and the business becomes more of a of an understand. They get a better understanding of how IT and the third parties work together. But if you start with a lean, mean organization, as Steve pointed out, um, and you use uh, you make sure your organization can do operate, and maintain, and that they are good subject matter experts for the way the systems currently are, and you use third parties like Opportune, then you have a dynamic duo. And then at the very end, when the deal is closed and systems are stable, then you go back to your normal cost model. I would say the other, the other thing that comes from both what Richard and Steve pointed out is as you build that relationship with your trusted parties that you bring into these types of relationships. The other thing that they start to build up that's valuable is they bring that consistent and deep downstream industry knowledge that maybe some of the people that you've had to bring into your organization, you've hired from other industries, that sort of thing don't have. You can, you can make sure that you've got professionals from this industry and that they have real world experience going through these asset transitions because people with this type of background, are they're better able to fill gaps and adapt on the fly when things inevitably go off plan. Because you know, the, the battle plan never survives first contact with the enemy. And so you've got to be able to respond when, when things change on the fly. And people with that experience, a lean team, an empowered team like Steve talked about, are better able to deal with those sorts of things as they come up. Yeah, and I'll go back to the beginning of the part of that question um, and you know, add that being able to put IT at the forefront of these types of acquisitions, one way to to help enable an IT organization to do that is to have a playbook and be very vocal that 
the IT organization is out there and organized and ready. And if the business sees that the IT organization is out there and has the organization, has the playbook ready to go, they're going to be much more likely to bring them in because, you know, you know, can- candidly, a lot of business people don't want to put a plan together to do one of these things. Um, and so if, if IT, you know, is very vocal, they've got a playbook, we've got a plan, you know, the business is going to be much more likely to, to bring them in early. So, uh, you know, I think we've said it a couple of times, I'm a, I'm a big fan of methodologies and templates, but you got to put that all together in a playbook and you got to be clear that, that the IT organization has it, has it ready to go. I want to follow up on that one briefly, Steve. Um, what role do you see uh, tools and templates and methodologies play then in terms of differentiating the success of an outcome, right? What what role do they play and to what degree and how are they supported by and where do they support other tools? Like I said, big believer in methodologies and templates, you know, they, they provide guidance and guardrails for the design uh, of what you're going to do. Um, you've got to have tools and templates that are specific enough to be able to execute, you know, an acquisition and not just a general project plan, but they've got to be flexible enough to support the type of acquisition that you might do. Um, and that's where really experience comes in. Um, you build these, these, uh, these templates and these playbooks up over, over years of experience and you, you capture knowledge and you, you go through some of these and then you sit back and do a little bit of lessons learned and, and add to what you've got. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, the, the best templates are there as guides. Um, but you, but you still need experienced people to help put those and apply those to the specific situation. I don't know that tools and templates rise to the level of a critical success factor, but there are certain ones that in my experience can make a big difference in the success of the project. Um, one that, that I've always relied on a lot in these IT transition projects and others, and it was really built up through these types of projects, is what we call a functional decomposition matrix. And it basically lists out all of the things that a refining and marketing company needs to be able to do to be a going concern. And so it, lists, it has all the functions and processes and core activities. And you can use that then as a jumping off point to identify what all processes are in scope for this new asset that you're buying. You can determine, are they going to be done on site there at, at the asset at the refinery, or are they going to be brought back and centralized? You can figure out, use it to identify who the subject matter expert on the sale side is and who's going to receive it on, on the buy side and so on. So a, a tool like that for me helps certainly get your head around and, and structure what are all the questions you need to ask and answer, keep track of that scope and make sure that then you have inputs into the plan to say, how am I going to disposition all of those things and what systems are, are needed to support each of those processes? So there's, there's a number of them like that, but that's one that pops immediately to mind for me is one that I rely on. And then it turns into a tool you can use later on other types of projects because you've got a nice inventory of your functions and processes. Now, uh, as some of y'all have been on the receiving end uh, of a number of these IT transitions, like you said, Kent, um, I'm wondering if there are any unexpected surprises, whether good or bad, that you've seen pop up often, or uh, at least if not often, then when they do pop up, they do have a, a tangible impact after the transition team is gone, right? So team's out of the picture. You're left uh, with this uh, completed transition and now, boom, you're hit with X, Y, or Z. What is X, Y, or Z, and what is usually the impact? Let's see. We've had missing data. We've had missing transactions. We 
not either of the one, not any of the ones you and I have worked on, Kent or Steve. But I was slapped with a uh, data audit the day after we closed from the government of a, of one of the sellers, and uh, of course I didn't have the data because it was a uh, you know the data was from prior. So um, I th I think we are we will always be hit. Okay, we will be hit with interfaces that have were forgotten. Okay, it's just a uh, Kent's functional decomposition matrix was awesome. I don't think we had it the first time Kent and I did a project together. And um, I think we probably missed a couple of interfaces. Um, and the business came to us and said, where's my interface? It's like, well, it was on the list. So you're gonna be doing it manually until we figure it out. <laughs> um, but you have to be humble enough to say that, okay? And there's gonna be misses. Um, if I go back to my win-win from earlier in the day, um, there's going to be misses. You're going to have to go back to the seller. Going back when you're on good terms is a heck of a lot easier than going back when you're on bad terms. I would say that. So always go for a win-win. Uh, stay calm. Understand what is required. As Kent pointed out earlier, we in IT know what or should be able to figure out by you know halfway through what's needed, what's really needed from a business perspective for day one and what's not really needed. And sometimes our job is to act as therapists to say, you really don't need that for day one. You actually do need that for day three. So let's get focused on it for day three. And oh, as Steve Roberts knows from experience, you could do that manually. Here's let me help you figure out how to do it manually until day five when you're going to get the automated solution in. So I think it's, uh, but yeah, Daniel, stuff is going to be missed, plain and simple. It's uh, as Ken pointed out, there are hundreds of applications that we take over when we take one of these assets. Uh, many times the super majors or the larger companies have them all totally integrated and then you get into an independent and they don't have integration. And sometimes we didn't even have apps that we, I mean, we, we use spreadsheets, whereas other companies used apps. So you're just going to find this stuff. Yeah. I would say the other gift that keeps on giving in this scenario, Richard touched on it briefly is data. Um, the integrations, it, since it's all about speed, uh, speed kills when it comes to data, because if done poorly, because you're in a big rush to get to changing control that, and doing a big data cleansing or harmonization activity, you can't afford to do that and still hit your CIC date, still get off your TSA. But all of those little choices that you make not to clean up data, not to convert data into a new nomenclature, that sort of thing are going to have costs. And so having the experience to know where to compromise and where not to is really important because otherwise it leads to a long road post integration of cleaning up that data because people aren't processing transactions well because the data is poor. So they're picking the wrong thing when they're filling in information. And then it makes reporting and analytics almost impossible if you have dirty data on the back end. So you'll pay for it later if you don't do it up front. But it's one of those things that you almost can't let be on the critical path to CIC or, or TSA. Leaves a long legacy, though. All right, team, that just about does it for the conversation today. I've got one last question to leave you with. Uh, this is pulling from your decades of experience, again, with these kinds of initiatives. But... If you had to summarize into you know one of the most important lessons, and I'm sure you've learned plenty of key lessons over the years uh, managing these uh, transitions, but if you had to pick one that has really defined a lot of your current and uh, is defining your future work, what would you say it is um, in you know uh, making sure that these acquisitions happen again holistically with IT as a focus and um, and you know keeping in mind the uh, 
various potential operational challenges that could come if not done intentionally, right? Putting all that into play, what's the most important lesson you've learned and that you were hoping to continue to apply going forward and why? I think, uh, you know, this is actually something Richard mentioned, I think um, partnering. And so it's, it's the business partnering with IT. It's the business and IT partnering with kind of the key experts uh, in the industry that are going to come in and help them through the, the transition and the acquisition. So, you know, if you know, going back to one thing for me, it would be, you know, partnering both internally and externally with the people that are going to help uh, make the whole thing successful. Yeah. And I'd go, I think I've harped on it throughout the call. Planning and preparation is what I would, would focus on. Uh, get get your head around it before shooting starts so that you can be organized and bring those partners into a structure and, and build confidence in them that the team's going to be able to deliver because you have that prep done. And if you've got a plan, so build the plan, work the plan, and you're collaborating and you've got teamwork, nothing, nothing is going to stop the, the team. No matter what it is, the team can figure it out. So you've got the experts, you've got a plan, you know what your change and control date is, you know what has to be there for day one. Realistically, you know the six business processes that have to occur on day one. And beyond that, it's just get it done. I think on that note, then we'll go ahead and wrap up. Thank you to the three of you. I really appreciate you coming on to help us better understand how to best acquire and integrate successful downstream assets for today's context, giving us the overview of some of the market motivators that are uh, making uh, these handoffs of downstream assets uh, more common and impactful. And then again, offering some strategies for focusing IT in those transitions and why that is such an essential piece of making sure these transitions are holistic. We've been hearing from Kent Landrum, Managing Director at Opportune, Steve Roberts, Director at Opportune, and Richard Lowe, Chief Executive Officer at Blue Box Consolidated. Richard, we'll start with you here. If folks want to find out more about some of your work, um, either at Blue Box or some of your previous work in thought leadership, how can they get in touch? How can they learn more? Uh, LinkedIn is always a great way to just uh, connect and stay connected. Easy enough. Love it. And then Kent and Steve, if folks want to get in touch with y'all about um, potentially using your services and support during a downstream transition, or they just want to source some more thought leadership from y'all on the topic, how can they get in touch? Sure. They can reach out on, on the website at opportune.com or on the company's LinkedIn page, and we'll get back with you guys right away to have discussions on downstream M&A. Perfect. All right, team. Thank you again for a great episode. This really was a pleasure again to chat, and I'm sure we'll speak again soon. Kent, I know we'll have you back on an episode soon, but we got to get the rest of y'all on too. So thanks again for your time, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you'd like some previous episodes or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future ones, make sure you're heading to our website, opportune.com, as well as subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we'll catch you on another episode of E2B. E2B.